0: Well, Psalm 83 is the last of the Psalms of Asaph. You remember the sons of Asaph were a guild of worship leaders who assisted in the spiritual life of the nation for many, many generations. Psalm 83 was probably written during the days of King Jehoshaphat. 2 Chronicles chapter 20 tells us that Judah was being threatened by a coalition of foreign armies. The Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites had all come together against Judah. Jehoshaphat, in response, ordered a day, a national day of fasting and prayer. After the king led them in prayer, the Spirit of God came upon a man, a common man. His name was Jehaziel, And he stood up and he prophesied a victory for the nation. You remember his famous words. He said, Do not be afraid nor dismayed. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Jehoshaphat then employed a very strange battle strategy. He placed the musicians on the front line. He sent them out praising God. Now, no offense intended, but this would be like us sending out muscle-bound Josh with his little guitar, sending him out into the teeth of the battle while keeping Reed Engel back here behind the lines, you know. That just wouldn't make sense at all. Yet the strategy so confused the the army of the enemy that they turned on each other and they ended up slaughtering themselves. God won the victory and danger was averted. But here's an intriguing detail. Verse 14 of 2 Chronicles 20 gives us the pedigree of this man Jehaziel who prophesied. Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Giel, the son of Mataniah. Notice this. A Levite of the sons of Asaph. Could Jehaziel have been the Asaph who wrote Psalm 83? Well, perhaps. Verse 1 tells us, Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult. Literally, there's a hum in the land. There's a buzz around us. You know, we, we hear we an hear a, a undercurrent of, of danger. Those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. Notice that. How wonderful. Notice here the child of God is referred to as one of God's sheltered ones. Did you know that if you're a Christian, you're one of the sheltered ones? Every Christian has a father filter. That means that nothing can get to me, but that it doesn't first pass through him. And whatever comes my way, we can rest assured that God has attached to it his purpose in his plan. Well, he goes on, he says, They have said, Come, and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. You know, this has been Satan's goal from the very beginning. He is the ultimate anti-Semite. In fact, Satan is the ultimate source of the world's anti-Jewish sentiment. All prejudice is evil, please understand. But Jewish hatred is especially sinister and satanic. You see, down through the centuries, Satan has tried many times to destroy the Jews. Babylon, Rome, the Turks, Hitler, Syria and Egypt, Hezbollah and Hamas. The goal has all been the same, the extermination of the Jewish nation. In 2006, Iranian President Hamadinejad, he stated that Iran's goal was to wipe Israel off the map. Today's radical Muslim nations share in his desire. This was the goal of the confederacy that attacked King Jehoshaphat. This will also be the desire of Satan and the Antichrist in the last days. Well, verse 5 continues. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Jebel, Ammon, and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined them. They have helped the children of Lot. My, Moab and Ammon were just the leaders of the conspiracy. Apparently, many other nations were on board as well. The psalmist says, deal with them now as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon. Remember what happened to Jabin? He was the guy where the where the woman came and, and uh, gave him a big glass of milk, and he kind of got woozy. And you know what happens when you take a big glass of If I have trouble going to sleep, I go in and get a big glass of milk because it puts you to sleep. And so Jabin starts dozing off. This lady gives him nice warm milk and cookies. You know she he thinks she's doing him a nice favor, and so he starts dozing off. And she runs in with a tent peg and boom, just drills it right through his temple, right through his head. A happy story. And here he's saying, hey, God, these people are are out to kill Israel. Deal with them as with Midian, as you did with Sisera, as you did with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became as refuse on the earth. Asaph is recalling the past victories in the days of Deborah and in the days of Barak. And he also mentions Gideon's triumphs over the four kings of Midian. He says, make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. Yes, all their princes like Ziba and Zalmuna, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. God, you socked it to them once, give it to them again. Fight them back, Lord. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind. And let's drive out the enemy like, you, like a stiff breeze drives the tumbleweeds across the prairie. As the fire burns the woods and as the flame sets the mountains on fire, so pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. You say, my, isn't he praying a violent prayer? He's asking God to to lash out at these people. Hey, you you get people that are camped out and they're wanting to come in and pillage your family and and rape your wife and daughters and slaughter your your friends and neighbors. What kind of prayer are you going to pray? you are got to pray the same kind of prayer. God, fight for us. Win this victory. The psalmist here asks God to chase them with lightning bolts. Frighten them with the storm. You know, Judges recounts how the battles won by Barak and Gideon, they were aided by supernatural fireworks. Supernatural phenomena accompanied these battles. And he's asking God for similar intervention again. You know, sometimes we underestimate God's power within nature. Did you know that a single summer thunderstorm releases the same amount of energy that's generated by a megaton hydrogen bomb? And there are 50,000 such thunderstorms every day on planet Earth. God has great power that He can unleash through the forces of nature. In the Great Tribulation, God is going to aim the power of nature at Earth in an unprecedented way. The sun will scorch. The meteorites will fall. A hundred pound hailstones will pelt the planet. You know, last week we, we had some hail land in our yard. We went outside. We had a couple of pieces that were about the size of a baseball. But that's going to be nothing compared to the Great Tribulation when God pummels the earth with hundred pound hailstones. One day Mother Nature is going to go berserk. Well, he continues, verse 16 Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish that they may know that you whose name alone is Yahweh or the Lord are the Most High over all the earth. My wife told me this week I need to start taking a breath between chapters. So, Psalm 84 is one of my favorite all-time psalms. It is a song of pilgrimage. You know, three times a year, the Jews were commanded to go up to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple. Twice in the spring, in early April at Passover, and in late May at Pentecost. And then once in the fall, in October, they were to go up to the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles. Psalm 84 consists of three stanzas. Stanza 1 depicts the psalmist's passion for God's presence while he's away from the temple, while he's thinking about the upcoming pilgrimage. The second stanza recounts his pilgrimage and his trip up to Jerusalem. And then the third stanza describes the peace that he finds when he enters the temple and when he is surrounded there by God's presence. Think of the psalm this way. His thirst for God, his trip to God, finally the treats of God. Psalm 84 applies to every heart that is thirsty for God. I love this psalm. The first stanza. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. Understand the temple, the tabernacle, was the happening place in the Old Testament. This is where, where praises originated. This was where sacrifices were made on the altar. This was where worship went up and praises were sung in the courts of the temple. He says, my soul longs. Yes, it even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, they cry out for the living God. In between trips up to Jerusalem, the psalmist would long for the presence of God. He would long for that, that sense of God's presence and awareness of God's power that he sensed there when he was in the halls of the temple, when he was mingling in the porticoes, when he was standing outside within the courts of the temple. He marked off the days on his calendar until he could make his next visit. He says, Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. The psalmist thinks back on the little birds that he would see that would be flying around in the top of the temple and how that they would actually make their nest up in the rafters. And he envied these birds that they could spend all day, every day, right there in the presence of God. Oh, to be like one of those little birds. He says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Happy are those who have this experience of dwelling in God's presence. You know, the psalmist could come up to Jerusalem for the major feasts, but he could only come several times a year. He was really relegated, most of his life was relegated there to the farmer or, or to the shop or to wherever it was that he lived. But he knows that when he arrives, they will still be praising God. Well, stanza two begins, Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage as they passed through the valley of baca now the word baca means weeping and a pilgrimage to jerusalem it was tough it was tricky you see the holy city was always a difficult destination whenever we talk of going to jerusalem we talk of going up to jerusalem why because it's set in the mountains and so wherever you were it was always a walk uphill to get to jerusalem roads led through deserts and over mountains to arrive these roads were tight and they were windy and they were laced with danger. It was always a difficult trip to come up to Jerusalem. The psalmist longs for God. But understand, longing is not enough. He also has to come. You see, a spiritual pilgrimage requires great determination. And the same is true for you and me. All kinds of distractions will get in our way of seeking God. They will interfere In our longing for God. This is why our heart has to be set on pilgrimage. Not just a longing, but but determination is a must. Yet as they journey, the pilgrims, they turn the Valley of Baca, or the Valley of Weeping, into a spring, the psalmist says. The rain also covers it with pools. Jerusalem is an uphill climb through the arid climates. And you better fill up your canteen before you embark. For even alongside today's major freeways, there are not a lot of pit stops. And yet the pilgrims love for each other and their willingness to share it with each other as they traveled together. They made the barren desert seem like a spring of water. They would open up their canteens. They would share their resources with each other as they traveled together. And God also helped them out in their pilgrimage. We're told he, He sent rain. And it created little roadside pools for them where they could could have water to drink as they journeyed. Verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. You know, normally a trip to Jerusalem would exhaust the traveler. But the pilgrims, they're on a path to worship. And so they grow stronger and stronger with every successive mile. Everyone who began this journey ended up appearing before God. What a huge encouragement to us. This means that every person who truly seeks God will find God. All of us who set out to be a worshiper of God will make it. God will see to it. He'll bring us up and we too will enter into God's presence. He says, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. The third stanza extols the blessings found in God's presence. He says in verse 9, "O oh God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. Oh, the psalmist would swap a thousand bulldog football games for just 24 hours in the presence of God. A trip to Tahiti would not be as welcomed as just one day In the presence of God. The joys, the delights, the peace, the contentment. There is no place he would rather be. There is nothing he would rather do than to just be there hanging out with God. Dwelling in God's presence. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I love this. The psalmist is saying, I'd rather just be an usher. I'd rather just be a doorkeeper in the temple and get a mere glimpse of glory whenever the door cracked open. Just be able to peek in, get a little sneak peek of God. I'd rather rather live that kind of a life than to have box seats for the sin games. A sneak peek at God would be better than front row seats in wicked places. He says, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. Notice this. God is like the sun. Wow. If the sun was a basketball, the earth would be a tiny pinhead. That's the difference in size proportionally between the sun and the earth. If if the sun were hollow, you'd be able to fit a million earths inside the sun. I mean, the sun is larger than Obama's stimulus package. And did you know that at the core of the sun, the temperature is 10 million degrees Fahrenheit. Amazing. The sun's surface is 5,800 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about 16 times hotter than boiling water. The barometric pressure on the sun is about 340 billion times what it is on earth. But you didn't know any of that. You didn't need to know any of that about the sun in order to go out and get a tan and enjoy the sun this summer, did you? Isn't it interesting? Likewise, you don't need to know all there is to know about God to love Him and to experience Him and to have fellowship with Him and to walk in His presence, and even be used by Him. All you have to do is just expose yourself to His influence. Just get a tan, get a God tan, would you? The sun, the Lord God is a sun, and He's a shield. And the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. And this is the verse that we should have our children memorize This is the verse that we should constantly be teaching our kids. For at some point, Satan is going to tempt your children along these very lines. He's going to tempt you along these very lines. Satan's going to come to you. And he's going to say, look at all the good things you're missing out on because you're serving God. Just give in. Just go with the flow, man. And and you'll get in on the fun. Why are you missing out? Please. Don't believe the enemy for a single second. Psalm 84 tells us that we'll never miss out on anything truly good if we stay in pursuit of God. He says no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. This is the truth that our children desperately need to learn. I've been asked to add an article to a children's study Bible that's coming out Uh, in a a few months. And this is what I chose to write on. No good thing will God withhold for those who walk uprightly. I want our children to know. Our children need to know. My children, your children need to know. That they won't miss out on anything good. Despite what the world tells them, the devil tells them, their friends tell them, they won't miss out on anything good. If they'll just stay in the will of God and continue to love God, He has great blessings in store for them. Well finally, verse 12 Oh, Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Oh, how the psalmist would envy us. I mean, he longed for God's presence. He traveled miles on foot across rugged terrain just to be there. And you and I, we have access to God's throne of grace 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Incredibly, we have the presence of God within us. How the psalmist would be, envy, would be envious of you and me. Well, Psalm 85. Wait a minute. Psalm 85 was written during the days of Zerubbabel, the man who led the Jews back to Judah from Babylonian captivity. The Jews, you remember, they returned to rebuild their homeland. But it wasn't easy. The temple, the walls, they were all in ruins. And Zerubbabel encountered great opposition. Psalm 85 is a song of new beginnings. It's a mixture of gratitude and grief, of agony and ecstasy. Psalm 85 attests to the fact that starting over is never easy. Perhaps you're starting over tonight. It may be hard, but it will be worth it. Psalm 85 teaches us. It begins, Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. Now notice God here calls His people Jacob. Often He calls them Judah, which means praise. Sometimes He'll call them Israel, which means prince. But here the psalmist calls the flock of God Jacob, which means scoundrel. You remember Jacob. He he had a seedy past. You know, he, he was a shameful character. And God wounded Jacob. You Remember, after the episode at Bethel, he, he walked around with a limp. And God's people now are limping back to Jerusalem. They're weak. They've been shamed. You know, they've been drugged and, and taken into exile. They've been punished for their sin. Now they know that if there's any hope for them, they're going to have to lean on God's grace. That's probably a good place to be. Verse 2. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all of their sin. You have taken away your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. What comforting words. Yeah, you blew it. You're Jacob. You're a scoundrel. You've been taken into exile. You've had a shameful past. But now God's forgiving you. And he's turned from his anger. you got a fresh start. What hopeful words. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people and to his saints and let them not turn back to folly. Notice, fresh starts begin when God speaks. And the psalmist is hungry to hear. Do you have a hunger to hear from God? to hear God speak into your life? You know, he created the universe by the word of his power. We talked this morning how he speaks through words. His creative work today always begins when he speaks. Are we listening for God to speak? Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. When Zerubbabel returned to the land, everything was in ruins, but his goal was clear, that glory may dwell in our land. He had high expectations. And even though you may have been coming from from ruins and coming from bondage and coming out of shameful places, coming back to the Lord. Hey, you should have high hopes and great expectations. For God's desire for your life is the same, that glory may dwell in your land. Verse 10. Here's the one snag that you have to overcome. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Now here's the snag in man's salvation, in man's reconciliation to God. God said that the penalty for sin was death. Thus, for God to be true to His Word and righteous in His works, man must die. Yet God also wants to show us mercy, and He wants to establish peace with man. So how can God... Do this without violating His truth and running roughshod over His righteousness. Is there a common ground where mercy and truth can meet together? Is there the mistletoe under which righteousness and peace can kiss? And the answer is Jesus Christ. You see, the cross looked both toward heaven and toward earth. On the cross, Jesus looked toward heaven and He bowed. He bowed to pay the penalty for sin and to satisfy the demands of God's righteousness. But in the same act, he looked toward earth and he reached out, showing mercy and establishing peace. In Jesus, mercy and truth have met together. In Jesus, righteousness and peace have kissed and become friends. The judge, he declared the boy guilty. And he sentenced him to a fine that the kid couldn't possibly pay. When the verdict was rendered, and when the gavel came down, suddenly the judge, he stood up from his seat, he took off his robe, and he walked down around the bench and stood next to the boy, his son. He reached into his wallet, and he paid the boy's fine. This is what our Heavenly Father has done for us. Yes, He's judge. And yes, He expects righteousness. But he's also our dead and he wants to show mercy. And so he satisfies both law and love at the same time. This is what he did on the cross when Jesus died for our sins and at the same time satisfied God's righteousness. Well, Psalm 85 closes, Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps Our pathway. For those who follow God's footsteps become our path. Psalm 86 is a psalm of David. It begins Bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy. You are my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord. For I cry to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant. For, you, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Now, you know, I hope you know that forgiveness doesn't have to be pride out of God as if He were reluctant to show, you know, love for us or compassion toward us. As if somehow God was reluctant to pardon Guys, God is ready to forgive. It is His nature to forgive. He is abundant in mercy. He's just waiting on us to ask. Verse 6, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I will call upon you, for you will answer me. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours, like your works. Compare the true God with the false gods of other religions? There's no comparison. Who among the gods dares to forgive as God does? You know, Islam crushes its opponents. Allah, He doesn't look to show mercy, but judgment. Buddhism locks the sinner into a prison of countless reincarnations where they have to return as slugs and snails as punishment for past mistakes. I mean, the best Buddha can offer you is eternal nothingness. Some offer, huh? The Hindu pantheon is full of vicious gods who feed on man's blood. Only one God bleeds for His people. Only Jesus has died in our place. Only Jesus delights to forgive. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. There is only one God. The God of the Bible. All other gods are either figments of imagination or they are demons in disguise. It's true. He says, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Teach me your way. That's my prayer constantly. You know, the Israelites, they knew the works of God. But it says that Moses knew his ways. There are a lot of people who know his works. But do you know his ways? Do you know God's heart? Do you know the motives behind what he does? I want to know God's ways, not just his works. And I love the next line, oh my. Unite my heart to fear your name. <laughs> Unite my heart, Lord. Bring it all together, Lord. Help me to continue to focus on you. Help me to fear your name, Lord. Unite my heart to fear your name. You know, so often we, we become a boiling cauldron of just sort of churning and mixed up emotions. Chemicals dance in our brains, and glands sort of squirt out hormones, and it creates this cavalcade of feelings inside of us. Thoughts just are kind of ricocheting around the cranium walls. You know, at times, my wife, she she looks at me, and she can see that I'm getting worked up, you know, that I'm kind of becoming an emotional lather, you know. And she'll kind of pat me on the knee, and she'll say, Come on, honey, get a grip. You need to get a grip. You know, David also had this capacity of getting worked up emotionally, of getting worked up into a a, a lather, so to speak. And and thus David here is asking God to help him get a grip. In essence, he's praying, Lord, pull me together. Help me keep it together, Lord. Unite my heart to fear your name. God, help me to, to get control of these thoughts that are bouncing around my brain. Help me, Lord, to rally my thoughts around you and the fear of God. This is what's important. Here's another way of saying it. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It is our responsibility to find those inner handles on our thought life. It is up to us to only think thoughts that are pleasing to Jesus. Always remember, the spiritual battle is waged in the theater of our minds. This is why he prays, Lord, unite my heart. Help me get a grip so that I can fear your name. Verse 12, I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, the proud have risen against me, and a mob of violent men have sought my life and have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. O turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Psalm 87 sings praise to the city of God. You know, the greatest city in the world is not Atlanta. It's not Washington, D.C. or London or Beijing. It's Jerusalem. For Jerusalem is God's city. It's God's earthly headquarters. Jerusalem was the sacred site of God's temple, the showcase of His glory. From Melchizedek to the millennium, Jerusalem has and will play a pivotal role in God's plan for the ages. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5 tells us, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. You know, Jerusalem is the epicenter. It is the center of the earth, both geographically and politically. Have you noticed that not a day goes by that you don't pick up the newspaper or go on the internet and read a story about Jerusalem? It dominates. And unlike most cities, there is no strategic reason for Jerusalem's prominence. John Phillips writes this. He says, it stands where no city has any business standing. It has no river. No strategic highway. Its roads lead straight out into the desert. Its topography is most unusual. Jerusalem has very few natural advantages. And yet, 34 times in its history, Jerusalem has been besieged and fought over. Today, the city is under Hebrew control. And the modern Israelis have made it their capital once more. And they have vowed to never let go of Jerusalem. Well, he begins talking about Jerusalem. Verse 1, his foundation is in the holy mountains. You know, Jerusalem is built on five mountains. Zion is to the west. Mount Ophel is to the south. Olivet is to the east. Scopus is to the north. And Moriah sits in the middle. It's the temple mount. There's a good picture of it. A Three there would be Zion. Two would be Moriah. And down below the temple mount would be Ophel and then one would be uh, Olivet, and then the the mountain above the Temple Mount, that would be Mount Scopus. Five mountains. Jerusalem sits about 2,500 feet above sea level. Now understand, just 25 miles away, the Dead Sea sits at 1,290 feet below sea level, the lowest point on the earth. Thus, Jerusalem is 4,000 miles above the Jordan River Valley. That means within 25 miles, you go from the lowest point on the earth to the mountains there in Jerusalem. You can leave a hot tropical valley, travel 25 miles, and suddenly you're in the snow. It's an amazing place. He says, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. See, here's what makes Jerusalem such a special place. The Lord loves this city. The word spoken here can be translated betrothed or engaged. And Jerusalem's grandest days are still ahead. When Jesus returns, when He rules over the world for a thousand years, understand, His throne is going to be in the hilltops of Zion. He is going to reign once more from the city that He loves, Jerusalem. If you've never gone with me to Jerusalem, We're planning a trip again uh, in November or or December of of this coming year. I hope you'll be able to go. It is a fascinating trip to be able to go to the city that God loves, to go to Jerusalem. He goes on, he says, I will make mention of Rahab in Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This one was born there. And of Zion it will be said, This one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when He registers the peoples, this one was born there. In other words, people were proud to be citizens of Babylon or Philistia or Tyre or Ethiopia. But no birthplace has more prestige than to have been born in Jerusalem. He says, both the singers and the players on instruments say, all my springs are in you. Jerusalem was the inspiration for artist and musician. All my springs are in you. Danielle lived for uh, a year or so in Jerusalem. Do you miss it? Absolutely. It's a beautiful city, it's a city that God loves. Psalm 88 is a horrible psalm, it's the saddest of all the psalms. Psalm 88 is a contemplation of Heman the Ezraite. And we're glad that Heman only authored one psalm. <laughs> he wasn't a great psalmist. He writes depressing, terrible, dire psalms. We're glad he only wrote Psalm 88. I hope I don't meet him when I get to heaven. He may. Notice the phrase, Mahaleth Leoneth. It translates dancing and shouting. (laughs) And yet there's nothing in Psalm 88 to dance or to shout about. Psalm 88 is a depressing psalm. It's a sad psalm. It's full of despair. Rather than praise, it's a funeral dirge. In fact, the last word sums up the entire psalm. Look in your Bible. Look at the last word in Psalm 88. What is it? Darkness. That sort of sums up the psalm. John Phillips writes this, We thank God that if there has to be such a psalm in the Bible, there is only one of them. I guess you could say, here the psalmist sings the blues. Verse 1, O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. That's about as happy as he gets. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near the grave. Some have speculated that Heman suffers a terminal disease, possibly even leprosy. In other words, he's got one foot in the grave. His friends have forsaken him. There's no hope for him. He says, I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man who has no strength. I'm just sort of adrift among the dead. Like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have put, me, you have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up, and I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I've stretched out my hands to you. Can I suggest to you that the psalmist is having a bad day? And it gets worse in verse 10. Will you work wonders for the dead? In other words, God, if I'm dead, it'll be too late to heal me. Shall the dead arise and praise you? Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave? or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark, and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. I mean, apparently the psalmist had been suffering his chronic condition for some time, since earlier in his life, even from his youth. He says, your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend, you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. Wow, and that's where it ends right there. Not one ray of sunshine lights up, Psalm 88. And yet, maybe that's the point of it all. Maybe God is teaching us that no matter how depressing our situation gets, we can always cry out to Him for help. With God, we can let it all hang out. He doesn't mind. When the poison of pain fills your cup, It's far better to pour it out than it is to let it eat through the bottom. Maybe that's the lesson we ought to learn from this psalm. You know, one more point here. In 1 Kings 4 verse 31, the author of Psalm 88, this same Heman is noted as a man of great wisdom. And there's probably a connection there. Wisdom grows out of suffering when you learn its lessons. Heman was a graduate of the school of hard knocks sure. pain had been his teacher, and apparently he had learned some lessons well. You know, I was thinking about finishing here at Psalm 88, but I'm thinking, there's no way I can send everybody home on that kind of a depressing note. So we got to do one more. Psalm 89 is by Ethan the Ezraite. First Chronicles 16 lists Juduthan as one of David's singers. Ethan may be a shortened form of the name Jaduthun. Now understand the background of this psalm. One day, David looks out his window, and he sees this little bitty tent that is that, um, is the home of God's ark, the ark of the covenant. In other words, the presence of God is sitting in this little tent outside this grand and glorious palace that he has just built. And this upsets him. How can he be living in these beautiful accommodations while the presence of God is resting in a tent in the equivalent of a pop-up camper? And David wants to build God a house. But God tells David that he can't. That it's not for David to build this house, that he's a man of war. But his son Solomon will complete the project. Instead, though, God promises to build David a house or a dynasty. And He promises King David three things. An enduring successor, an everlasting throne, and an eternal kingdom. And Ethan sings of it in Psalm 89. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. The immediate seed in fulfillment of God's promises was David's son Solomon. But the ultimate fulfillment would be his future son, a son of David named Jesus. Verse 5, And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence. By all those around him. Notice this, those who know God best revere him most. That's not true of me. My my kids don't exactly revere me. You know, they know my my flaws. They they know I'm made of clay. You know, they they know that, yeah, I might be the pastor, but I'm also the dead, and I'm sandy, and they know my weaknesses, and they love me and they, they respect me, but they don't exactly revere me. But it's interesting with God, those who know Him best, revere Him most. And this is why His angels, His mighty ones, are His most ardent admirers. He says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like You, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds You. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, You still them. Notice when Jesus calmed the Sea of Galilee, He did what only God could do. Thus it was proof of his deity. Verse 10, you have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. He's referencing the exodus and God's victory over the Egyptians. You remember Rahab means proud one. Some scholars associate it with Egypt, while others link it to Leviathan. And you remember we talked about that twisting serpent back in Psalm 74. When Satan tried to thwart the crossing of the Israelites, God defeated him and chopped him up into little pieces and scattered him around. And then you remember that whole story there in Psalm 74. Go back and, and listen to the, the CD on it. It's, it's, a good, it's fascinating. Here he's making a reference to that again. He goes on, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world in all its fullness. You have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, rejoice in your name. Tabor and Hermon were mountain peaks in northern Israel. He says, you have a mighty arm, strong in his hand, and high is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. There are not many thrones on earth that can, that we can, of which we can say righteousness and justice are your foundation. But of God's throne, we can make that statement. He says, In your name they shall rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor our horn is exalted. Horn, an animal's horns were symbolic of its strength. And thus he's saying here, our greatest strengths, our assets, are not our muscles or our intellect or even our courage, but our greatest strength is God's favor, God's grace upon our life. This is our greatest strength. For our shield belongs to the Lord and our King to the Holy One of Israel. Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. You know, David was actually anointed three times to be king. By Samuel, there in Bethlehem among his brothers. And Hebron as king over Judah. And ultimately as king over both Israel and Judah. And it's also interesting that Jesus is also anointed three times. He's anointed king over our hearts. He is king over the church. And one day He will be king of kings and Lord of lords, king over all the earth. Here Messiah means anointed one. This is a reference to the Messiah. The next verses speak of the coming of the Jewish Messiah. Verse 21. With whom my hand shall be established, also my arm shall, be, shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in my name his horn shall be exalted. Also I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation." I hope you know, no one in the Old Testament ever referred to Yahweh as Father. In fact, it was considered by the Jews to be blasphemous to call God your Father. To call someone Father implied that you had His nature. You had the same nature. A child, a son, has the same nature as his Father. And yet, you remember, Father was Jesus' favorite name for God. He was always calling God His Father. At age 12, when he was found in the temple, he said, I must be about my Father's business. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, When you pray, pray our Father who art in heaven. And we're told in, in Romans, when the Holy Spirit enters into our hearts, he puts us on intimate terms with God, so much so that the Spirit cries out from within us, Abba, which means Daddy, our Father. The Spirit places us on this kind of intimate relationship with God where we can call him father he says also I will make him my firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth now recall firstborn was not a reference to birth order but to prominence among siblings the firstborn was not necessarily the first to be born but he was the one who had the birthright and in Colossians 1 verse 15 Jesus is labeled as the firstborn over all creation not that he was born by by God but that he had the prominence. He has the prominence over all of God's family and all of God's creation. He says, My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever in his throne as the days of heaven. Psalm is is speaking here of God's covenant with David. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, Then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my long suffering, my loving kindness, I will not utterly take from him nor allow my faithfulness to fail. In other words, God's covenant with David is not going to be dependent on the obedience of his descendants. He says, My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out from my lips. The word altar means to double. God is not going to double-cross David. He's made promises to David that He's going to keep. Not even David's descendants can thwart those promises. He says, Once I have sworn by My holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and His throne as the sun before Me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky but this promise was tested for David's descendants were evil and they were judged by God in fact king jeconiah was taken to babylon and israel's throne lacked a davidic successor for several hundred years god cursed king jeconiah and his family line Jeremiah 22, verse 30, pronounced this curse on Jeconiah. There we're told, write this man down as childless. None of his descendants shall sit on the throne of David. And this puzzled the rabbis, for on the one hand, the Bible says that a seed of David will rule forever. And yet here, the line of David, the royal line of David through Jeconiah is is cursed, so that No descendant of Jeconiah would sit on the throne. This puzzled the rabbis. The psalmist also mourns this predicament. He says, but you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You have broken down all his hedges. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. I mean, all this in contrast to God's promises of faithfulness. All who pass by the way plunder him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and have not sustained him in battle. You have made his glory cease and cast his throne down to the ground. The days of his youth you have shortened. You have covered him with shame. O Lord, how long? Will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what futility have you created all the children of men? What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses which you swore to David in your truth? Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have approached, O Lord with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. I mean, the royal line passed through Jeconiah, but his descendants were cursed. So how did God intend to keep the covenant he made with David? We don't get the answer until we arrive at the genealogies of Jesus. Joseph was heir to the royal line. He was a descendant of Jeconiah. Thus, as Joseph's heir, Jesus had a rightful claim to the throne. But though Jesus was Joseph's heir, and thus Jeconiah's heir, he was not Joseph's son. He didn't have the blood curse that came through Jeconiah, for he was born of the Spirit. God was his father. Thus, he bypassed the curse on Jeconiah's family. Of course, Messiah had to be a blood relative of David. This is why Mary was Jesus' mom. For she was a relative of David, but go back and check her genealogy. She doesn't come through Jeconiah. She bypasses Jeconiah. She comes down through another branch on the family tree. Thus, Jesus was the royal heir through Joseph, but he was the natural heir of David through Mary. And in doing so, God was able to bypass the curse on Jeconiah and fulfill His promises to David. That's pretty amazing. And so Psalm 89 ends, Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen.